The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco. Our show is all about the exciting world of real estate, and in particular, how it relates to the lucrative New York market. But if you're not planning a real estate transaction in New York, we still have plenty of information that you can use no matter where you are. Now, here's your host, Vince Rocco. Good morning, everybody. It is Tuesday, June 6th, and at this hour, have you ever wondered about the difference between modern and contemporary art, or wondered if it there even is a difference between the two? Well, First of all, the two terms are not interchangeable. There is a difference, and it is based on rough data uh, ranges established by art historians, art critics, curators, art institutions, and the like, who recognize a distinct shift that took place marking the end of the modernism uh, era and the beginning of the contemporary age. Also at this hour, for the week of May 22nd through the 28th, there were 32 contracts signed on properties $4 million and up. The total weekly asking price volume was 264 $2- $8 million with an average asking price of $8.3 million plus. The panel is here for Hot Topics, but first I'd like to welcome my listeners in the United States and around the world. You are listening to Good Morning New York Real Estate. I am your host, Vince Rocco. If you want to call into the program uh, today, the number is one 472 5788 That is 1-866-472-5788. We have special guests this morning. Together and individually, they are advocates of the arts and are avid art collectors. First, Richard Grossman, with more than three decades of real estate experience in New York City, he is well known as an innovative, effective, and strategic leader in both the residential and commercial fields. As president of Halstead Property, he handles the day-to-day operations of running the Halstead Company, plus the village and Soho offices for Halstead. Under his careful and thoughtful direction, a solid network of loyal and top-producing agents has been created in the downtown offices of Halstead. He is known for his calm and patient demeanor and is always able to address concerns and solve problems in a composed and logical manner. Agents under his leadership have won numerous first, second, and third place awards in the prestigious Real Estate Board of New York Deal of the uh, Year Awards Ceremony. He is proud to have mentored the Real Estate Board of New York's designation of the 2008, 11, 12, and 13 Rookies of the Year. My goodness, I forgot about that. Richard also holds a degree in art history. Also here today is Adam Sheffer. Adam is president of the Art Dealers Association of America. He is also partner at Chime Chime and Reed Gallery. Adam has a long history with the ADAA. He has served as its vice president since 2013 and as the chairperson of the art show, the organization's annual art fair since 2009. Adam's service to the ADAA and his leadership in the field has been exemplary, says the organization's executive director. Adam has more than 25 years experience in the art world, oversees the 180 member members of the nonprofit organization. Wow, that's amazing. Good morning to both of you gentlemen. Good morning, Vince. Good morning. Thank you for having uh, us. Thank you for being here this morning. So I want to get right to it uh, where the ADAA Foundation is concerned. I was very intrigued as I was going through some readings and stuff last week. 
Uh, it was created to distribute grants promoting the appreciation of art and art history. It is, suppo- it is supported rather by donations from the ADAA members. The foundation was used to establish the ADAA Relief Fund to ensure that galleries and nonprofit art institutions that were affected by Hurricane Sandy in 2012 would be able to recover and remain in business. I mean, if that's not uh, amazing, I don't know what is. Who are these ADAA members? And tell us about the success of this group and and how important this endeavor is or was after the 2012 disaster of Hurricane Sandy. Sure. I'm happy to weigh in on this. Um, the ADAA, the Art Dealers Association of America, was founded in 1962 by a group of art dealers who wanted to create certain standards of uh, ethics and practice that were to be prescribed by the best art dealers in America. In order to be a member, you need to be proposed with letters of recommendation by members in good standing and have an interview and sort of an audit. Um, What happened essentially is that we have 180 members to date. And um, around the time of Hurricane Sandy, we realized that it was our opportunity to put the organization forward and uh, with our foundation, which gives grants, organize this relief fund to assist not only our members, but also other galleries and not-for-profits in New York, particularly in, I think it was called Zone 1 at the time, to give them immediate uh, relief money without question um, to help them move art save their archives, really just get things going at an emergent moment. And uh, it was really wonderful. We reached out to our community of dealers, and people came forward and gave uh, very generously. It's interesting you mentioned Zone 1, <clears throat> because even as Richard can tell you, in real estate, we, 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 we manage, so to speak, to Zone 1 as well, first floor apartments in a particular area where we can be flooded. So uh, to that and how how important is that still today in the art world and, and because a lot of galleries are in that zone one area very way west in Chelsea, Western Village, Western Tribeca. What are these dealers or, or, or owners of these these galleries thinking these days? I mean, you know, we could always potentially have another major storm like that. How are they protecting themselves? Well, I think because that's the, a biggie, I think. Absolutely. And I <clears> think <throat> uh, what Sandy did um with great misfortune, was made us rethink about the role of the gallery and the physical space of a gallery, and that the concept of storing artwork in archives uh, below street level um, is not a good idea. In fact, uh, we know what happened in these areas, and water, as they say, sinks to its own level. And I think that a lot of people, when they went to relocate, were scared and put off by the idea of having subterranean space, whereas it used to be a real selling point when you were trying to get somebody into a gallery because they had all of this space that they could access for whatever reasons, private or public, and now it's something that people have great concern about. Um, It's also interesting because um, there were galleries that relocated. And with the change in commercial leasing prices in New York, particularly with zoning changes in the West Chelsea Arts District area, I think you've seen a proliferation of galleries um, to all sorts of different areas, to Bushwick in Brooklyn, to the Lower East Side, and back to the Upper East Side, actually. Correct. And we're going to talk about some of the neighborhoods, you know, past and, 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 and current and forward because it's interesting if you look back at the history of this city and how we've grown, Soho being one area, you know, the, the Tribeca area being another area, 
now in Bushwick and Crown Heights, it's like, it's interesting to see where the artists go to do their thing. But before we talk about that, how did you get interested in representing artists? I mean, it, it, it's one thing to have, you know, <clears throat> I guess it's the same as managing anybody, but, ha- but, but artists in particular, I think, are gems of the world. How did you get, you know, interested in, in managing them? And, and their expectations and, the, and their talents. Well, it's an interesting idea. And I think part of it happens from your academic experience. Um, I realized when I graduated from college that I had spent more time in a library than uh, I probably should have or ever wanted to. And that I had a firm foundation of understanding our art historical past. In fact, my background was in Bronze Age wall paintings. Um, Bronze Age wall paintings. Tell me about that. Yeah. Uh, um, my thesis was actually about um, wall paintings that were done um, in 500 BC in the site of Akrotiri, which is on the island of Thero, which is known today as Santorini. So to make a very, Santorini. very... Interesting. Yes. Wow. Okay. Beautiful place. Um, yes. But to make a very long story and tedious story very short, I had spent enough time studying the past that I understood art historical precedent. And I wanted to be a part of the art of our time. And I wanted to be involved with the artists who were making what would be looked back as those wall paintings or those Renaissance uh, frescoes or tapestries. Um, and the fact that you could work with living, breathing artists make it all the more exciting for me. The artists are you currently representing you know, in your day-to-day? We work Excuse regularly me. with about 25 artists, and that includes estates and foundations of how do you choose which artist to represent? I mean, it, it's like a lot of things in, in, in our lifetime, but, you know, there are good, there are bad, there are, you know, whatever. How do you choose who you want to represent? It? Is it a, a certain um, aspect of their talent that you look at, or is it just anyone in general? Essentially, what are you looking for when you meet a new artist? I think a lot of it has to do with things that are intuitive. Um, we take a long time in our gallery before we sign an artist, and we really want to watch them over a period of, you know, anywhere between two and five years to just see if there is a consistency in the work, little indications of growth. Um, It's also very important to us that one artist has some kind of relationship to the other artist with whom we already work so that when you walk into the gallery and you walk into a booth at an art fair, say, everything has a nice relationship to one another. There are themes and trends that run through the artists that make the whole program so coherent and cogent. And it's something that really sets us apart from a lot of other galleries where you walk in and you think, oh my God, thank God this isn't my living room because um, none of these things make any sense next to each other. Correct. Richard, so you know many of the first emerging neighborhoods here in, in town were populated by artists, dealers, etc., Soho, for example, West Chelsea, for example, Tribeca in its early days. Where in the real estate world do you see the artists moving to now and why? Well, firstly, they're moving to Brooklyn and to Ridgewood, Queens. I think that's what we're seeing. Uh, Ridgewood, Queens. Absolutely. Uh, young artists um, are, and even mid-career <laughs> artists are buying properties there. And there's a whole art scene that's coming out in that area. It's very easy to get to through the L train. Um, it's one stop over from Bushwick. Bushwick sort of happened for artists maybe more five, seven, ten years ago. So this was sort of the natural progression out from, from there. And uh, we have a number of artists that we're friends with who have either bought in, Bush, in, in, in Bushwick or Ridgewood or are looking to buy there right now. 
Do you see the same? I mean, I, I'm, I'm old enough in this town and old enough in this business to remember the, the artist and, and, and all of the creativity around them in the Soho neighborhoods and the West Chelsea neighborhoods where it was almost like a religious thing where, you know, developers wanted to come in or, or whoever wanted to come in and, and sort of push them out and create housing for everybody, not just artists. Do you see the same kind of drama in in these new neighborhoods that you that you uh, I mean the, I mean and, I mean the uh, the answer to some degree is is unfortunately yes um because I do think that what happens in those instances is sometimes the artists get priced out but even look at West Chelsea I mean you know go back 20 21 years ago you know West Chelsea <clears> was very affordable there weren't the buildings we see there today the galleries who were being priced out of uh, Soho were who will mostly lease their space in Soho were coming into the West Chelsea area and buying the buildings. People like Paula Cooper, people like Gagosian, people like Chime and Reed, and they were able to establish a foothold there that they own versus rent. But now to buy property there to build the gallery, it's just it's just priced out out of there altogether. The galleries are now looking at other areas within Manhattan. They're going to the Lower East Side. They're going back to the Upper East Side, depending upon the the type of gallery that they are. Um, we're seeing galleries in, in Brooklyn as well, Bushwick, in, in other places. And where the galleries are and the artists sort of are come as well. I believe it there. Come back to talk about um, a few more things. Modern and contemporary art, uh, to name a few. We have to leave it there. This is Good Morning New York on the Voice America Variety Channel. We will be right back after these messages. Don't go away. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com It's not easy to make it big in New York City. It's even harder to sustain that success for decades. However, two teams have defied those odds due to their formulas for success. Both have all-star rosters performing at the top of their game. Each have an undying commitment to greatness, a willingness to evolve, superior training programs, and ownership that invests heavily in their products. It only seemed natural for the world's most valuable sports brand to partner with Halstead, a market leader in the New York metro area, and now proudly serving as the official luxury real estate firm of the New York Yankees. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Good Morning New York, Real Estate with Vince Rocco. If you want to call into the program, we're toll-free in North America at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Now, back to the show. All right, everybody. We are back with Richard Grossman and Adam Sheffer. We're talking about the art world and how it relates to real estate. And I want to talk a little bit about modern and contemporary art because I think people get very confused by that. 
Have you ever wondered about the difference between modern and contemporary or wondered if there is even a difference, as I talked about at the top of the show, between the two? Well, first of all, the two terms are not interchangeable. There is a difference, and it is based on rough date ranges established by art historians, art critics, curators, art institutions, and the like, who recognize a distinct shift that took place marking the end of the modernism era and the beginning of the contemporary age. Modern art and guys, correct me if I'm wrong here, is that which was created sometime between the 1860s, and I know people get, say, maybe sometimes the 1880s, uh, and the late 1960s, and art, therefore, conceptual, minimalist, postmodern feminist, is considered contemporary. So help us in the listening audience around the world understand the differences in, in these two art choices and, and, and how one morphed into the other, so to speak. Well, Loosely speaking, I think that um, the concept of modernism sort of came about <laughs> exactly um, came about as a result of um, a group of tenets that were being put together, um, sort of by artists at in the in the sort of um, late nineteenth century, people like uh, Picasso and Cezanne, um, who were starting to break down the way we look at things and them in a manner that was um, of mimetic fidelity to what they saw, reinterpreting things through modernist uh, tenets, uh, the same way you would see it in architecture, moving away from adornments into things like what Mies van der Rohe did, which were much more um, in line with the structural elements by which the buildings were created. Um, I think the difference in terms of time period between modern and contemporary art um, there's a shift. People tend to think that modern art is anything sort of after about, you know, 1860, 1880, like you said, um, up until about 1945. And then we enter this little area that some people like to refer to as post-war art. Oh, we know from post-war and real estate, right, Richard? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> and then that post-war period around 1970s with the advent of minimalism, when everyone was doing the grid, that was seen as sort of um, the beginning of what we refer to as contemporary art, where we started to look at things that were much more conceptually based and things that were based on um, things that no longer were necessarily man-made or made by a paintbrush, but they could be made by machine, and yet they could still be considered artistic. It, what, 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 what really caused the change, the changeover or the, 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 the terminology, terminology change? I'm actually going to jump in and maybe bring it back to New York and real estate a little bit here. Um, it was really the, also the artist, art movement changed from being the center of Paris to New York City huh. between World War, before World War II to after World War II. So, you know, you think of the contemporary art movement as being an American, you know, invention, American, you know, you know uh, genesis. And that genesis happened here in New York City. It happened in Greenwich Village. It happened in a um, little later than that with Greenwich Village with the abstract expressionists, people like Jackson Pollock, William de Kooning, uh, Jackson Franz Pollock. Klein. Um, and then a little later on, further generations, um, inhabiting places like Soho, and then the artists that came up through that period. And, and Adam talked a little bit about artists you know, who make more conceptual type art, people like a Carl Andre, where it's like the, he's not actually making anything. He's just assembling pre-made or prefabricated pieces of art, assembling it and calling that art. It's a whole different way of looking at sculpture. So that's a little bit of a change between Europe and the, and, and the United States. I think also brought that was the advent for that. 
Richard, you also say that both real estate art, real estate and art can be touched and experienced, but stocks and cash and bonds and not right. so much. So explain, I sure. agree with that, but explain to our listeners what you mean by that. So I think there are two types of people out there who are looking for investment. And there are people who will look for the uh, more conceptual things. If you own stocks, bonds, you know, you know, futures, that type of thing, you can't touch or feel them. Or feel them. Um, people who like real estate, uh, will, you know, many real estate developers, um, owners and so forth are also very big art collectors. We can name many in the industry. But also true the other way around. There's many artists love to dabble in real estate. And I think it both goes to the side of the brain that wants to experience things by touch and feel rather than knowing that you have a lot of money sitting in a, in a bank account which you can't see or touch. Adam, talk a little bit about what your partnership at Chime and Read is all about. Compare it and contrast it what you do with the ADAA. I mean, it's vastly different. So what do you do at, at, as a partner at Chime uh, and Reed? Two very different organizations. Um, the ADAA is a not-for-profit, and I am there to work with our members in order to um, enhance the role of the art dealer in finding the public and the press. I am also interested in keeping them updated on important changes in tax codes or legislation that's going on in Washington. So the ADAA is a 501c6. It's a trade organization that I lead in order to keep our members aware of the uh, role that art dealers play in the cultural and economic landscape. Also meeting with people in the city council to make them understand ramifications of all the taxes that our dealers pay and why we should have a voice in decisions in the cultural landscape. Um, at Chime and Read, it's quite different. There, I'm a salaried professional where I work with the other partners in order to promote the artists that we're very fortunate to represent, to put on exhibitions, to help them make uh, museum acquisitions happen, uh, help sell the work. Uh, take the work to art fairs and present it. It's multifaceted. It's a 24-7 job. Um, but it's something very rewarding because um, it has an emotive quality and you're dealing with people. And it's a nice family affair. It's not a big corporation either. Former Mayor uh, Michael Bloomberg recently donated $75 million towards the construction of the shed an art center state, uh, slated to open at the Hudson Yards in 2019. Now, this was all over the press for the past you know, couple of weeks. He initially donated $15 million in 2012, uh, as the New York Times reported, and last week added 60 to make it a total of you know, um, almost $75 million. The money was given through his charity organization, Bloom Bloomberg Philan uh, Philanthropies. So a total of $421 million has now been collected toward a $500 million capital campaign. What does this say? to the art world out there or to the people in this town in particular who don't necessarily understand the value of this kind of donation. I, you know, when I read this and, you know, I'm not an art, you know, historian, but I can appreciate it certainly. But this to me says there is something about the art world or the reason we continue to fund it, you know, obviously make my, uh, uh, Bloomberg uh, a big contributor. What is it? I mean, what, what, what makes this so special? And the shed. Talk a little bit about that if you can. Sure. Um, you know, it's very interesting because um, I think that for anyone who has um, an executive role 
or is an elected official. I think you lead by example. Yeah, exactly. And I think that uh, Mayor Bloomberg was somebody for whom um, the notion of culture with a capital C was very important. Um, you would see him as she would come back. Yeah. <laughs> you would see him at uh, cultural affairs all over the place. You would see him at museum openings, at art fairs. He understood the importance of uh, the cultural community in the overall economic um, landscape of the city. Um, and I think he's somebody who, who puts his money where his mouth is. And I think he's a great example of the kind of um, very old-fashioned patron that we have here in New York and around the world that um, is supporting the arts and is also running a major business at the same time. I mean, these are not leisure class uh, people who inherited their money. No. They're making their money, they're earning it, and they're giving it away at the same time. Yeah. And I, I believe that the gratification for a lot of these individuals is not merely having their name on the wall. It is a responsibility that they feel to um, the legacy of the city. And that's what I respect and appreciate about that particular gift. I'd like to add as well, I think that you know what it says to me is, is something we I think we've known already, but that is that art matters and culture matters. Let's not forget that the shed is going to be at the uh, the related projects. It's the largest Hudson Yards. It's the largest construction site in, in New York City right now. This is they're basically building a city over on on uh, in that area right now. And I think this says that the the connection between where people want to live, where people want to work, and culture and matters, and that. We're seeing that those things come together with things like the shed, with the opening of the Whitney Museum, and 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 this is good in both good for economic purposes as well as good for societal purposes. Let's talk a little bit about the culture in the city around the world, okay? Ooh. And as you said, started in Paris, moved on. But you know, let let let's let's chat briefly. We've got about three minutes left to to the segment. Culture to me has always been very important. One of the reasons I relocated to New York City from the suburbs is because I, I'm a cultured person. I enjoy you know, doing all that stuff. But how does it relate to the – what does it mean, rather, to the millennials today um, in our society? Because, I, you know, there's a huge difference, and we talk about millennials on this panel, on this radio show every week. But how do they look at culture today based on how we looked at it in our day? And I'd say we're roughly all around the same age. What do they see? What do they think about culture? Well, I, I mean, I, I'm going to I'm going to just throw out there. I think that they're looking at culture and looking at art as a way to live their lives. I think that we're certainly seeing, and I know this through Adam and through people that I meet through Adam, that the art world is a world full of young people who are coming into the world who are expecting to make a living and producing art, whether it's whether it's painting or whether it's in 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 music, whether it's in dance. And this is a viable way to live their life today and to express themselves. I think one of the exciting things about this moment and millennials and culture in New York City is that you have organizations like the Extraordinary Park Avenue Armory that has one of the greatest uh, performance organizations in the city now. And I think what it does is it allows um, millennials to understand that there is a vocabulary for culture, for performance, for music, theater, and arts that doesn't necessarily have to be 
your grandfather's old Oldsmobile. It doesn't have to be some ballet or opera at Lincoln Center. But there are things that speak to the vocabulary of the art being made today that millennials really respond to. And the Park Avenue Armory has done a greater job than any organization I can think of in embracing this. You know, what Shane and I have a client right now who's um, just this week celebrating 20 years of the ABT. And you know, we sold one apartment years ago, and now we're selling that for him and buying him a new one. And every time I look at him, and, he, and you know, this week he's celebrating 20 years, and he was a millennial, you know, back when I first met him. And I look at him all these years later. He's the sweetest guy you've ever want to know. And uh, shout out to Marcelo Gomez. He's just fantastic. But you look at the progression you know, from start to finish. And there's a great success story for millennials. Guys, unfortunately, we are out of time. We've got to stop there. Uh, Adam Sheffer, Richard Grossman, as always, thank you for joining us. And please come back and see us again. Thank you, Vince. Thank We're you. going to break. We'll be back right after these messages. Don't go away. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. American Heroes Network is a program for and about our American veteran heroes and their families. Join host Gary Ray as he shows what is being done to help our veterans and showcase the companies and organizations that are helping our veterans and their families rebuild their lives. Listen for American Heroes Network, live and powered by the Voice America Variety Channel. Every Tuesday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Good Morning New York, Real Estate with Vince Rocco. If you want to call into the program, we're toll-free in North America at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Now, back to the show. All right, everybody, we are back. And thank you once again to Richard Grossman from Halstead and Adam Sheffer on the art conversation this morning. Always very important. I am now here with our panel, Louise Phillips-Forbes from Halstead Real Estate, Bill Horrigan from LeaseBreak.com, and Tony Sargent from Core Real Estate is on the scene this morning. Welcome Good back, morning. Tony. How was everybody today on this dreary, wet Tuesday? Yeah, dreary. Dreary. But, but good. Just a quick question before we get into the, the, the hot topics of the week. You know, I always like to ask, so what's going on in the marketplace? So how have open houses been this past weekend? Uh, are we moving and shaking again? Are we just kind of, you know, dripping along? What's the scoop? All of you have very different businesses. All of you have very successful businesses. But just quickly, what's happening? I, I had an uh, open house this weekend in which I was thinking about coming here. My email, I have 350 emails, and I'm sure they're all for that apartment. We had 60 people come to a, an open house for two first-floor apartments in a non-dorm and pre-war great location, 250 West 75th Street. 
one C and one D. Priced at five seventy five, nine fifty for a two bedroom, nine hundred fifty thousand, and we listed it to be combined and two separate. And last night we had forty six people come. So we are expecting probably twelve to fifteen offers between the variations of uh, combined and uncombined. So. Where's your, where, where's your gut on that? You think it's going to go for a combination or you think it's going to go individual? Interestingly enough, only six people came for the combination. But we will have three offers from those six people. And, um, you know, it's just a really interesting. I mean, part of my predictions for 2017, we'll talk about it, I'm sure, later on today, about interest rates being a game changer to get people off the fence. And Very I, much so. I sent, you know, it's... Uh, People are trying to secure the next decade, you know, of where they're going to be. Were those six, uh, were those six all under a million or where no, were those? absolutely not. Actually, it's six, five, four negotiations on a townhouse. I mean, it, there, we have a lot of activity and uh, mm-hmm. there is confidence. The higher upper end of the market, meaning north of 10 million, you know, uh, I listed at 1185 Park Avenue on Memorial Day weekend. Uh, Coming back a little bit. 18.5 million mm-hmm. for Penthouse A. And I've, you know, literally had inquiring about it. And I've shown it probably eight or 10 12 times. That's I think- absolutely astounding. And thank God. Good for that. Because that's, it, I can see it a little bit as well coming back. But that's, that's amazing that that's happening. I mean, it's interesting because I work a lot in the downtown market, and what I'm seeing is actually sort of the mid-section of the market, which tends to be your Wall Street million-dollar earners. Um, that tends to be the middle of the market, two and a half to five million, is what I'm seeing downtown. Is that's actually quite slow, the two and three-bedroom markets. Um, I mean, I've seen that historic. Soft. It's soft, and it's is historically it because it's overcrowded, people are, or is people it are just negotiating. I think it's there's a lot more inventory. So if you take something like Chelsea Flatiron, maybe three years ago, you would have had probably 20, 30 apartments in that market. So that's sub-market. Today, you have 116. So it's actually a great buyer opportunity right. out there. Um, I think you have a combination of more inventory, but you also have a combination of people that are a little bit nervous. Um, you know, I think you've got people at the top of the, at the, at the top of the market that are starting to look and see prices having been adjusted, and they're like like in two thousand nine, they they jump in the top of the market jumps in when the numbers make sense, right? Yeah, uh, but I also think that we, there's a lot of inventory. I mean, if you think about the develop, I've done almost thirty development, maybe thirty development projects, and I'm finding that my projects that are ten and twelve years old are dated. Mm-hmm. And I love this, but really kind of better finishes. A lot, I think, depends on the pricing too. Like Louise, that. Two bedroom was under a million, right? You said it was nine fifty. So in Upper West Side, right? So when I hear that, I know the Upper West Side really well. I'm thinking you're going to be jammed at that open house. I don't care if there's a dormant or not a dormant. So, you know, the 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 buyer. There's to me with Manhattan. There's always very smart, savvy buyers out there. At om- almost every time, uh, no matter what the market is. However, I agree with Tony. And I'm sure you agree. A little slower still. We're still not yeah, quite back absolutely. to where. Yeah. Um, but hey, if something's priced well but, or it's in a good the, neighborhood, boom. You know? Absolutely. And, and I'm finding that as I'm collaborating with my sellers, you know, we are having to be strategic, particularly coming into the summer months. Mm-hmm. Because if you don't lock a deal up now, then you're going to yeah. be in the cycle from September. Yes. And you're not closing till the new year. Yes. And because people want to kind of re-educate themselves to what's happened between <clears> the summer and, you know, at 12, I, I, won, I won something right off of Fifth Avenue last week. There were seven people bidding on it. It was a flat, a, a real three-bedroom combination. 
um, that was asking a million nine, and it went three hundred thousand. Absolutely, but again, it's it's the price, and I think it's definitely when you're looking at monthlies are a little higher because it's a combination. That's still a very good. uh, I'm just saying that is a strategy for people and sellers who are looking to move. Please, Mm -hmm. it's a it's against your grain to think, why am I pricing my apartment under the market? Right. But I promise you the market will settle itself. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's, you're so right. 100%. Because New York is like, everybody is smart enough that the market decides what the price is. And mm-hmm. I think in this market, we're like what you see in Chelsea and Flatiron and other downtown areas, you're seeing prices being reduced. And if you're chasing the market down, you're never going to catch it. So you have to get ahead of the market. All right. On the heels of that, in New York City's increasingly crowded residential marketplace where developers are trying all manners of attention-grabbing tactics to stand out. It is inevitable that amenities would also evolve. Once, it was enough for development to offer the bare minimum in terms of perks, a common area where residents can hang out, a fitness room, maybe, a few treadmills, and maybe, if you were really uh, lucky, some outdoor space. However, that is not the case anymore, especially when you consider the fact that there are more high-end, perk-packed residential projects hitting the markets in every corner of this city, getting more eyeballs on the property and protecting the price in a crowded market is all that matters. So, in a housing market where there is a large amount of competition, new development, as product continues to enter the fray, and a lot more is coming on as we speak, is it incumbent on the developers to differentiate in ways that they may not have done so in the past? I think that one of the things we have to remind ourselves is that in the market today, you know, uh, we have a lot of new frontiers that are happening and, and things that we've talked about, keeping our eyes on what's happening in the Bronx and keeping, you know, Brooklyn's been on the, on a run for uh, two decades, but really the last seven years um, since the uh, recovery of the Great Recession. But, um, you know, I think that we have to remember that location, location, location is always a component. And these developers are taking the opportunity of large acquisitions to become an anchor of a new location. So that's what's happened is we've pushed out further into Queens, we've pushed out further into Brooklyn. Keep your eye on Staten Island because you have those amenity projects that are happening as rentals in Staten Island, and that is the first symptom of a new trend where that will happen. But people are going to look, they're selling and branding a lifestyle, and it's a lifestyle that's at home, a healthy life at home. Yeah, but, but, but let, let me ask a question though, because I've I've been in and out of, uh, and I'm back in new development condo sales again, uh, which is really where I love to be. But you know, it seems to me, you know, many years ago when I first started in in, in new development sales, everybody was amenity focused, and then all of a sudden it really didn't matter. And now I'm back in it again, and I'm seeing, you know, the first question people ask: I have a development on the east side. Is there a pool? Is there a garage? Is there this? Is there that? So. It seems to me like, you know, amenities were important, then it was not so so much so, but now it seems to be back where people really want, as Louise just said, it's more of a lifestyle. So what these developers are creating in these buildings is more mapped to who you are and how you live your life, and more importantly, what you want in your, you know, existing building that you come home to every day or wake up to every morning. I was going to say, I'm a little more cynical of uh, of like the, oh, people's lifestyle is different now than it was, say, 10 years ago or 20 years ago. I think a lot of it has to do with the inventory situation. So a, a tenant may now ask for a bowling alley or a pool because there's a lot of inventory out there. When, there's, when all they're focused on is getting a place to live and a roof above their head, that's the last thing on their mind. You know, and the other thing I'll say is, uh, Louise mentioned location. It's so true because I can't remember. I don't think there's any 
new development or building in the heart of the West Village, for example, that has a bowling alley, right? Because you don't really need to put a bowling alley in a building in the West Village because you're going to be attracting people because it's the West Village, you know? Well, it's also a pushing the envelope yeah. a little bit too. They're going into neighborhoods with these new Right. condo development right. projects that they never were in before and is is it the amenities that are selling so, these I mean it's interesting buildings? when you look at when you look at I mean I got into the business in 1990 Louise has been in it longer than me and has done a lot of new development right until about 2003 2004 you didn't really need amenities because it was about space right everything developed up till then was two bedrooms one bedrooms so all of a sudden in 2004 to 2007 you had this run up of inventory and a huge amount of inventory hitting the market at higher prices. So apartments got smaller. So then all of a sudden you started seeing bowling alleys and you started seeing, you know, you saw the Philippe Stark building in, in downtown Manhattan in a new neighborhood. So I think in areas where you're pushing into new neighborhoods and there aren't necessarily the amenities there, you're then giving an insurance factor Become for an those anchor. You become an anchor because people can't just walk out the street and get all those amenities outside. Depending on the neighborhood, they cannot. That's right. Right. And also at the same time, it becomes about how you how do you differ in a high inventory market, how do you differentiate yourself from other buildings? And then as a buyer, when you're looking, you're saying, well, if this building is the same price but it has no amenities and this one has more amenities, the assumption is mine will sell for more down the road. So I think it's a combination of insurance, it's a combination of lifestyle, and it's a combination of pushing into new neighborhoods where you need an anchor and you need something to draw people to make them feel that they're not completely on their own. Contrast that to the boutique buildings that are out there by developers, and I happen to be in one now, 30 units on the east side, but we have a full amenity floor. But Mm -hmm. some of these boutique buildings, 30 units maybe or less, do not. So is that is that a problem for the buyers out there who say, yeah, I like the, 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 the small size of the building. However, there isn't much here other than a doorman and a porter, uh, and a, you know, whatever. And do you, are you able to accomplish storage? Because I find that that yeah. becomes a key factor. And if you, if you are getting your neighborhood, Correct. then I find, because I've done a lot of them, 534 Hudson Street, 50 Madison Avenue, 19 Beach Street, all of those were boutique buildings with, that were, we called no frills. Mm-hmm. Right, right, right. No frills. No frills projects. And yeah, I think again. And I think amenities are now different too than ten years ago. Right now, you have a whole issue of people buying everything online, so you need package rooms that are much bigger. And I think it's Big really time. what serves today's needs, right? And a lot of times, you look at the pools and you look at the bowling alleys. If you never use the bowling alley, you're paying for your neighbors to do it. Right. right in 2004, 2005, you had all the breakfast rooms. Who's paying for that? No one else is paying for that but you. So if you never use it, so I think. It's about being strategic and looking at, does the amenity package serve you and will it serve most of the people in the building? But, but, but that serving or not serving is also about resale. So let me just say that when you're looking at the cost of construction today at you know 400 bucks a foot buildable for a finished high-end apartment to $700 a foot, depending on how big the project is or more, you know... Those amenities, actually, price per square foot for the developers are 250 mm. bucks a foot or less. And they are, if they're big enough projects, the cost to operate them is well worth the, the ability of what the resale will be and the market share that you're exposing your attractive to the building. Right. The, the one point right, we, ha- we, oh, we have okay. to leave it there. We'll pick it up after the break. This is Good Morning New York on the Voice America Variety Channel. We will be right back. Don't go away. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. 
It's not easy to make it big in New York City. It's even harder to sustain that success for decades. However, two teams have defied those odds due to their formulas for success. Both have all-star rosters, performing at the top of their game. Each have an undying commitment to greatness, a willingness to evolve, superior training programs, and ownership that invests heavily in their product. It only seemed natural for the world's most valuable sports brand to partner with Halstead, a market leader in the New York metro area, and now proudly serving as the official luxury real estate firm of the New York Yankees. Aliens with Gas, we are the extraterrestrial rock show airing every Saturday afternoon on the voiceamerica.com variety channel. <laughs> Whatever happens out and about, it kind of dictates our conversation. For sure. And we like to tie in a little bit of the past and obviously keep it real current. And real current was a couple nights ago right here in Phoenix, a phenomenon happened. On Thursday night. Phenomenon. Do, 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 do. <laughs> phenomenon. Do, 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 do. Phenomenon. Do, do. All right, never mind. <laughs> That's every Saturday right here on the Voice America Variety Channel. You are listening to Good Morning New York, real estate with Vince Rocco. If you want to call into the program, we're toll-free in North America at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Now, back to the show. All right, everybody, we are back. So moving on, Buyers Inked contracts for 123 luxury apartments during the month of May this year. But in the last week of the month, marketing uh, time soared to 504 days on the market. This according to Olshan's latest market report. For the week of May 22nd to May 28th, there were 38 contracts signed on properties, $4 million and up. The total weekly asking price volume was $264.8 million, with an average asking price of $8.3 million per apartment. How are we doing with the luxury market in general and why so many days on the market still? Because my impression is, and Louise and I were just chatting during the break, I'm now working on a development with uh, high-end units and, wow, the traffic is unbelievable. Now, maybe they're not pulling the trigger so fast, but the traffic is unbelievable. Yeah, I think that there's a, first of all, we got to remember what what happened 504 days ago and where were we? We had a market that peaked so aggressively in 2015 that it was unsustainable not healthy, and it was based on sort of look at the Baccarat Hotel, the penthouse there. The developers had it on the market for $65 million. Right. It actually sold for $42 million. and it doesn't mean that the market was all, you know, that the market sh- dropped 33%. It means that the market wasn't where it was asking. So now we have post fast forward an election that people were on the fence and not confident about of what was going to happen to our world and there those prices have reset and if you're not in it and get it then you will be chasing the market i agree i don't know if i have much to add to that tony if you want. uh yeah i mean i think i've been doing some stuff downtown and it's like what you see i think what we've got is an inventory you've got a lot of inventory at the top of the market and while 30 units being signed a week is great if you compare that to the number of the amount of inventory that's out there. If you take Tribeca, for example, I was looking at four bedrooms between seven and 10 million last month. 
and you had 30 properties, which doesn't sound like a lot, but you had one contract signed a month since January. So what I'm seeing is that the first three months of the year, first four months were a bit slow, but May and May and June have actually started to pick up in those markets. But very much, so. I think you have to, as a seller, if someone's looking to sell in that market, you have to look at what are how many contracts are being signed in your micro market, because otherwise you're going to sit on the market for ages. All right, the Fed Reserve has uh, may raise interest rates as soon as next month. The minutes from a recent policy meeting show. In the minutes released went last Wednesday, an official at the U.S. Central Bank said it would soon be appropriate to raise short-term interest rates again. The Wall Street Journal also reported that means the Fed may lift its benchmark rate at the scheduled gathering in June, according to the newspaper. Officials also moved toward a consensus on the plan to decrease the Fed's $4.6 trillion in holdings of Treasury and mortgage securities later in the year by letting those securities mature without investment. How will that affect our current market? I mean, we've been up and down with, you know, the feds, I'm raising, I'm not raising, I'm raising, I'm not raising. Where, where are we today with these, with these well, I know the, and interest rates? I know the broker's pitch in this is, okay, great. Buyers will get off the fence now because they fear that rates are going to be going up. However, from a big picture perspective, all else being equal, if rates go up, then the average price of a cost to, you know, the monthly cost for a buyer is going to also go up. So generally speaking, when mortgage rates go up, again, all else being equal, prices go down. So there is the smart money that is looking at this and seeing, well, if rates continue to inch up, generally speaking, it's not great news for a real estate market to be in an in a, in a, in a interest environment, interest rate environment where rates are going up. However, the only caveat I'll say is that when rates go up, it's usually because the economy is strong. And so if the economy is, in fact, strong and continues to gain momentum, then that could offset this. And, you know, wage increases could happen. People could want to spend more money for apartments. So it's hard to see how it will shake out. But when I hear that, you know, as a, as a broker, I'm, I'm not super excited when rates start to inch up like this. Right. But you got to also remember, they mm-hmm. have, they've risen three times mm-hmm. in two th- since 2009. That is not healthy. You cannot have a zero, you know, money, if you will, forever. And so if you look at the cycle of the last 60 years and what the cost of money is, I came in the business and it was 12.4% to borrow. So for me to borrow $100,000, it cost me $1,204 a month. My first mortgage was at 12%. But I think, right, I think, I think to, to so, his- so I'm, I hear you and agree, but, but you, city of renters, which it's 38% of it is only available to be bought. And that in itself, being a city of, of renters, is a wealth preservator, mm-hmm. period. And also, I think agree with you. And I think the other thing is, too, is that I think we, again, in Manhattan, we have to look at micro markets, right? If you're looking at the 1 million and below, you're looking at a much more interest rate sensitive purchase. But we also still have a huge amount of cash purchases in New York City. So people are financing, but they don't necessarily need to finance. And they're doing it, excuse me, because of the low interest rates. So I think there is, there's probably going to be some effect. I think there's, a, there's definitely a sense of urgency with people that are buying at the lower, at, at the entry level. Um, and then you may see some sort of shifting around of how people use their money when, you know, if they can't just finance $2 million for you know 3%, they're maybe going to think twice about it. But I think we do have to look at this market in Manhattan. There is a large percentage of, you know, 30, 40% of the market is cash buyers. Or, you know, there's money coming from parents, there's money coming from other sources. 
I, I'm interestingly enough, I've just did three deals last week that were their mortgages were their line of credit. Mm-hmm. Sorry, my phone's ringing. Guys. The, the one thing I'll just say is, uh, Louise mentioned that the economy or, or that the interest rates were very low for you know unsustainable long period of time. But don't forget that there's a reason why they were like that. It's not it's not just like it's unhealthy to have low interest rates because right. the economy was disastrous, right. you know. And uh, in fact, what fueled and, our economy? Yeah, yeah I, I, I mean, right, sure. right. So I mean, we, there's a reason why it was like that. And now, of course, things are starting to improve, so they're starting to increase interest rates. And to your point, it may, it may impact, it, it may certainly have an impact on what prices are, right? Because if you take, if you're, if that cost wasn't there five years ago, and now you're introducing that cost, or if you start to change things like tax, you know, tax deductibilities, it may impact. But I think to to Louise's point. New York, you've only got thirty percent of thirty-five percent of the market that's for sale, and then thirty percent of that is condos. So, correct. All right, we have a few minutes left in the segment. Let's talk about the infamous PPSF, price per square foot. As you start your property search, you're likely focused on a few main criteria: price, space, and location. These are all essential considerations for your home search. Obviously, you want something you can afford in the neighborhood you desire, with a space that serves. Your needs. Everyone is looking for the best deal, of course, so naturally buyers start by looking at the sales price. However, cheaper does not always mean it's the better deal, and that's where the price per square foot comes in. All right, so, I mean, this is one thing that can completely drives frustrate me, me, drives me crazy <laughs> as an agent, because everybody wants to know what's the price per square foot, what is the square footage of the apartment, and they do the calculation right in front of you in their head, and they determine, <laughs> without even looking at the apartment, well, this is too expensive. So I get so frustrated as an agent, and this happens on a daily basis. What is the fascination with this? Well, let's let's just clarify that trying to to do a price per square foot based on a co-op is really annoying because it is, you you know, you're trying to also adding up the the square footage of each room and determining what the square footage is is not the way to do that either. we're in a finance mar- finance driven market, so people are number driven. I was I, I'm guilty. I was one of the first people in my company to start doing price per square foot. But don't and, you, out. But, but don't uh, you try and sell from a visual perspective? I, Does the space work for you? Well, and that's really the conversation. You can price per square foot all you want, but you have to look at the space and how does it lay out. And also, if you look in, if you look downtown, for example. Smaller units are always going to be more per square foot than the larger units. So the bigger they get, the square footage, price per square foot goes People down. People don't get that, though. I try right. and explain that to them in a new building that I've been selling in for 10 years. Studios are priced per square foot higher than the one bedrooms and the two bedrooms. They the, don't get yeah, it. Your 1,200 square foot two bedrooms in Chelsea historically have been always like 100, 200 more than your larger 3,000 3, square foot ones. Hey, so, Tony. But, but, but so when, when you need to... <laughs> When you need to explain this to people, how do you do it? Well, I was, I was going to say, so I'm, I'm a little bit of a devil's advocate. I'm going to play devil's advocate a little bit in that I think price per square foot as a baseline is critical. I think it's really helpful to establish kind of what is the baseline for the apartment. I, I, I do think it's important. Also, because like we said, most buyers, finance people ask about it. You as a seller's agent, you need to know what it is. So I highly suggest any listing you have, you calculate that square footage because you want to be able to understand it to be able to offer an objection if a buyer comes in and talks about the square footage. So it's to me, it's completely critical to understand. All right. We are completely out of time. I'm so sorry. That is the show for today. Thanks to my (laughs) guests, Louise Phillips, Forbes, Mahalstead, Phil Horrigan, leasebreak.com, Tony Sargent from Core Real Estate. Uh, we will be back next week. Be kind to one another for all of us at Voice America all around the world. Thanks for joining us, and we will see you next time. Goodbye, everybody. 
Thanks for tuning in this week. Please join us for another edition of Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco next Tuesday at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Here's hoping all of your transactions are successful ones. We'll be right back.